WPSL Port St. Lucie. It's time for We Are Just Christians live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie. Here are your hosts, Mike Smith and Gary Jones. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning and welcome to We Are Just Christians this today. We thank you so much for tuning into the show. Hope you can stay with us for the rest of the hour. We're on until 10 o'clock here in Port St. Lucie. I started to say we're on live, but we're not live today. This is a recording. Yeah, this uh, is this is in the week, so this is a strange session for Mike and I because we just got through doing the show this yes, morning, we did. and we're now we're back doing it again. Sunday afternoon because I have to go out of town. Um, we will be last Monday, and you're not going to be back in town until tomorrow. So, in, in the event, this is not a live show, but we're glad you're with us today, and hope that you can stay tuned for the show. I would normally give you the numbers to call into the show. But that's not going to be possible today. But I will give you the text numbers and the email so you can get a hold of us by text message or email in response to the show. Or if you've got an idea for another topic for another show for We Are Just Christians, we'd be glad to hear from you. So you can reach the show by text message during the week now at two numbers. Mike has a number. That's me, 772-260-6120. Gary's text number is 772 772- Two six zero sixty two twenty two six zero sixty one twenty two six zero sixty two twenty. Or this week could be a good week for you to email, long or short, either one. We'll get the email and we can respond to you uh, at a later time. Just Christians at att dot net. Just Christians at att dot net. Normally we're a live call in show. And we'd love to hear from you, but can't do that today. But. Uh, this show, We Are Just Christians, is about you know spirituality here in the, in the 21st century. Our premise on the show is that we believe that the New Testament is a document inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to us, as Peter says, and it pertains to all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so we believe we can find out how to live, how the church should act, how we as individuals should act. And really in this, the Bible says that the gospel... Paul sold to Timothy has the promise of the life that now is and of the life that is to come. So we believe that there's a promise for having a better life as we live in this world today through the teachings of the gospel, as well as eternal life when this life is over for those, those who love the Lord. So that's what this show is about. And so we're trying to recreate as much as possible in the way we live individually and in the church and therefore reproduce in society somewhat the principles of the New Testament. And so we're here to discuss that with you. Maybe you've got questions about that. Maybe you want to bring up whatever subject. Maybe you've had real bad experiences with Christianity in the church or religious people, and you're certainly welcome to call in. We don't mind that at all. Uh, We don't care what you say as long as it's generally respectful and not vulgar. We don't care what you say about that. We'd like to talk with you about it. And we're going to try to, you know, make sense of it if we can. Maybe you got a really good point that needs to be made and that we're overlooking or we're, we have a blind spot. We're certainly welcome, willing to talk with you about that today on the show. Just, uh, well, not today. We're certainly willing to talk with you on the show anytime we can. Today is not that, that day, but we'd be glad to hear from you about that. So text us, uh, email us, and we'll be glad to talk with you. So that's what the show is about each week. We are just Christians. And we start with the idea that God is active in the world, not by performing miracles every day and uh, all that kind of thing, but God is active in the world through his word and then through as the Holy Spirit works on us through his word, God acts in history. He is still 
the Lord of all the nations, and Jesus Christ is still King of kings. And so he exerts influence on all those events around us. And primarily... Not so much the direct influence we all want him to, but influence. Primarily, what's he hearing? Primarily through his word. That's what he does. Uh, Yes. At at least that's the most identifiable way that he influences us. Yes. I'm, you know, I'm skirting around the idea of God's providence, but that's not always recognizable, particularly at any one given time. Right, right. Uh, but we can recognize his word and what he tells us to do, and that's the starting point, or at least I view that as the starting point. Yes, is his word. Like, like the last half of John twelve forty eight, the word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Talking about those people who do not receive his words, but actually, the, his word is going to judge us all on the last day in that in that sense. It will be the standard by which we will be measured. Yes, and and, of course, and we're going to talk about that here in the show today. That's our plan anyway, a little bit about the judgment of God and so forth, what that's about. Uh, but I, I just have to be blunt with people, um, Gary. The teachings of the New Testament do not fit into modern politically correct culture, cultural thinking very well. They are antagonistic to modern politically correct thinking. And we ought to just be we just have to be willing to kind of acknowledge that that that's really the way it is, and, and um, I, I'm not ashamed of that fact. It may not be popular with people what the Bible says about many subjects. Among them, what the Bible says about judgment, as you mentioned so often, I, I, that doesn't bother me because I have a background in these things. It may certainly bother other people, and I'm not trying to minimize that or insult people by what I'm saying. But the Bible does not fit into the mold of modern thinking, whereas the idea that humans can figure out all their problems on their own and just by in counseling and enlightenment figure out what what they should be doing. The Bible teaches that the way of man is not in himself to direct his own steps. We need God. We, we need to understand something beyond ourselves to live. And, and that involves a lot of things. That's why we believe the New Testament is important for you to study and learn. We spend a lot of shows talking about the practical ways to understand the Bible. Right. So you can get down in there and dig and you'll see that it's an extremely deep book. It covers uh, every aspect of being a human being. And so it's important for us to uh, dig into that. I'd just like to say one, one of the things I think primarily that our society is has changed and what makes it unappealing to our society is the fact that there is an absolute truth and that absolute truth belongs to God, not to any individual. You don't have your own truth. I don't have my own truth. The real absolute truth is that of God. Exactly. And, and, and that's the part that people reject because it doesn't always fit them, doesn't let them do whatever they want to do. One of our ideas is that you get to decide your own fate and destiny, and whatever whatever you decide is just hunky dory with God. And should be with everybody else, you know. That's a pretty modern idea, and it just doesn't fit what the Bible says. Because in the long run, in a practical way, it doesn't leave a way forward for all the rest of us. If you get to do whatever you want, it doesn't work out very well. You know, I, I kind of we haven't got to our subject yet today, Gary. But when I was <laughs> teaching school, I taught middle school for a couple of years in a private school, and so. Some one day the kids got mad. They, they called me Mr. Blame. They were I was always blaming them for this and that. And I, actually, I was probably the easiest um, 
teacher around, really, if they just pay a little bit of attention. But I said, okay, fellas, I'll tell you what we're going to do. And I had a class about 35. I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. Today, there are no rules. I'm suspending all of my rules. No rules at all. We can do whatever we want to do in this classroom. Oh, they started cheering. They're all excited, all happy. So I, get my, I took, kind of back, went back, leaned back on the back of my desk, took my grade book out, look at this kid. I start making marks in my grade book. What are you doing, Mr. Schmidt? What are you doing, Mr. Schmidt? I said, well, I'm giving, I'm giving him an F. I'm giving you an F. You ask a question, you get an F today. You can't do that. I said, well, wait. I didn't think we had any rules. I said, you know, uh, Tommy, I want you to head to the office. Get out in the hallway right now. I don't want to see you anymore. Get out of here. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to call your parents. I didn't do anything. I said, yes, who says you didn't do anything? There are no rules. Well, pretty soon chaos erupted. And pretty soon they were, and I got worse than that, but they, they were willing to say, well, I'm trying to point out to them, if there are no rules, it sounds good when you first hear it, but you forget the kind of people that are out there that, you know, the rules are made for. The Bible says the law is made not for a good man, but for a wicked man. Right. And we would forget that. So everybody that's complaining about, you know, God having this rule or that rule or what good behavior is, when you live in a society as we're getting to where there's no rules, you'll figure out just how quickly you want rules. And then all these uh, non-religious, wonderful, peace-loving, secular people are making more strict rules than religious people ever did about stuff. Anyway, that's my theory. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Well, it sounds to me like it's kind of like I think it was near the end of the book of Judges uh, where uh, the condition of Israel was set down and said every man did what was right in his own eyes. There was no no government at at that point. I forget exactly where that is. It's Judges 1. It's repeated three or four times in the book of Judges. Yes, is where it is. Well, Gary, this kind of brings us to the subject you and I looked at real briefly before we began today to talk out and about and that's the wrath of god i'd run across i'd run across some of this material here recently on the wrath of god and and um had a few thoughts on that of course it's not a, as we mentioned the wrath of god is not a very politically correct subject in fact i think it from what i was reading in the boston globe or maybe it was new york times this week an article about secular society this idea of the wrath of god is one of the big reasons why the elite intelligentsia of our society, he says, are never going to be religious again. The idea that God is yes. a wrathful God who punishes the wicked. And so, uh, and a lot, a whole lot of other people, it's kind of filtered down through society that God is not a God of wrath. God's a God of love and love only. And we all get to define love and love is love and, you know, and all that. And there's no wrath in any of it. Of course, what, you've, what I'm trying to get at here, getting ahead of ourselves, is where, where you find the wrath is when you, get rid of, when you have a society that's only just about, supposedly only about love and no punishment, now you end up with a society where the punishment comes and it's harsher and more ill-advised than anything that could be directed by God himself. So in any way, anyway, that's the point I'm making. But, you know, I, I, when you look this up, uh, in the Old Testament just the Old Testament. There are more than 20 words that are translated wrath or anger in one way or another, and it's used more than 580 times, just that word. I think you get did some counts just a minute ago. Yeah, I, I just did some searches on, it, on the English word of wrath and the English word of uh, anger, 
and I got something like something like three hundred hits between those two. Yes. Uh, on and and not only was it wrath, but it was associated with wrath of God. You, I didn't yeah, what, you didn't do just wrath. You did the wrath of God. God it yeah. still got 280 stuff. Yeah. Now, now that, that poses a problem for our listeners, and I, I'm not going to diminish this problem, and for me and you too, but is a person says, well, I love God, I love the Bible, but then you'll dismiss a whole topic that God mentioned 600 times just by using one word in the Old Testament alone, not much less the New Testament. There's several other words in the yeah. New Testament. And, you, and we'll just dismiss it out of hand it's being not important and unmodern, and I don't want to hear about it. I don't, I'm not sure how we square all that. And, and the truth is, Gary, you, we can sit here, you and I, in a nice air-conditioned, quiet room, and we can talk about the wrath of God as if it doesn't mean anything to us, but we ought to be afraid, too. You know what I'm saying? If we really thought about it, you and I wouldn't be blithe about talking about it because right. it's a serious subject. Well, what what uh, what did Jesus say? Was it Jesus said something about don't fear the person don't fear the one that can kill the body, but fear the one that can kill the body and the soul, soul. in hell. In yes. hell, Matthew ten. Yes, and that's <laughs> that's right. Don't that's who you fear, and and so we need to have a, a healthy fear of displeasing God, and this all goes back when you start looking at all this this uh, business about the wrath of God. Now, historically, it's been a big subject, and it probably gets a lot of play in. You know Hollywood's depiction of preaching and hellfire and brimstone preaching and all that kind of stuff it gets a lot of play that way, but there's a reason for that, and that's because it is uh, an important subject in the Bible, probably misunderstood. But now there, the, a study from a concordance somebody wrote here w- w- that finds that there are more references in Scripture to the anger of God than to His love and tenderness. A. W. Pink, a famous Calvinist scholar, said that. That is interesting. I don't think it's any more important, but here's the point in the Bible, getting ahead of ourselves. The reason that the love and tenderness of God is such an important thing is because of the wrath of God. Okay. If God was not a God of, could, that could be angered by our disobedience and our spitefulness, then there would be no need for his tenderness and love. Now, on the other side of the coin, before you get mad at the Christian God of the Bible... Go back and take a little good hard look at the pagan gods that were in existence at the time of the Old Testament and then on into the New. You will find out that there's not love. There's no love in those gods. There's no tenderness in those gods. All those gods were full of anger. And and the anger of those gods was not a rational, directed anger over certain events and things like that. It was often very petty. It was petty and whimsical and, and, and childish almost and vengeful. In a very in a very uh, immature way, and that's the that's the kind of God. The idea that all nature is kind and peaceable and all about soft willow trees. Nature is not that way at all, and the gods of nature are not that way. So the Bible certainly isn't presenting a a whimsical God that just takes out his petty anger on people and destroys them all at the drop of a hat. There may be pictures of God like that in some literature, but not in the Bible. But so so you got to balance. Understand that without the, the without the wrath of God, there's no reason to even talk about the love of God, and that the love of God is more than a counterbalance to the wrath of God in the Scriptures. And the whole point of the Bible is that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that all who believe in Him might not perish but have have ever, everlasting life. So the whole point of the Bible is the love of God. 
why is the love of God played up? Because God is wrathful toward those who sin against him. So, God is an angry God. His wrath, rightly understood, is part of his character. It's integral, not just a fleeting emotion. With us, our anger can come and go over whimsical, strange things. We get mad because we burn the toast. You know, we don't get so angry when we find out hundreds of thousands of babies are being killed every year in our society. We won't get too angry about that. But we're like, we're like Jonah. Remember the, everybody remembers the story of the whale in Jonah or the great fish. Yeah. They forget the last chapter where a vine, Jonah's watching the city. He's all angry because God's, why? He's angry because God's going to save the city of Nineveh. And he wants God to destroy the city. Yeah, basically, basically, they repented, and now God's going to change his mind about destroying them. And he's not happy about and that. And he's not happy about that at all. And so God, he's sitting there mad about this. So God lets a vine grow up to give him some shade, and he's happy. Then all of a sudden, he's happy again. And then God kills the vine with a worm, and the vine withers, and Jonah's angry again. He's just showing Jonah, you're upset with me because I'm angry that people sin, and then I'm happy, and I save them when they repent, even begin to turn. The Ninevites just began to turn and God saved them. And yet you're upset about a vine. Most of us are like Jonah. If the mood strikes us, we're good and happy. If it doesn't strike us, we're not. Uh, and, and this is the way humans <clears throat> or are. M- more importantly, if it benefits us, we're happy. If it doesn't right. benefit us, we're not so happy with it. Yeah, I remember some years ago, this you know, there was a hurricane headed up from the southeast toward the eastern United States. And who was that guy? Pat Robertson had the big radio tower in North Carolina, whatever it was. I'm, I hope I'm not saying the wrong person. Well, I think it was Pat Robertson. It was on the air, you know, about how that we need to get pray. All you Christians pray. We've got so much invested in this antenna and our radio station. Our worldwide ministry is going to be damaged if this hurricane comes this way. And so people prayed, apparently, and the hurricane diverted its course and how God had been merciful and by prayer it averted the storm and saved the antenna of course it i think it turned out to be hurricane katrina <laughs> something like that went and just killed all these people in louisiana you, you think god's that whimsical gary he'd rather save a radio tower than flood the city and go ahead and flood the city of new orleans i don't think that was what happened there but <laughs> this is people's view of god but god is an angry god because his wrath correctly understood it's not just a fleeting emotion that he flings a few thunderbolts and gets over it, feels better, like a kid punching a hole in a wall. But it says in Nahum 1, verse 2, at the beginning, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. He is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. And he goes on to talk about this. So what he's trying to say here is that God hates the people who, in the sense, who hate him, and he is opposed to them, and he just determines to punish them. Why? Most in an effort to get them to repent and turn away from their intransigence and hatred of him. He's jealous in that he, because he's the creator of the world, wants their affection and attention because he's the only one that deserves any of it, the other gods do not. The other things they're pursuing do not. And so he's warning the people in the book of Nahum. Yes, the Lord is good, and he's a refuge in time of trouble, he says, at the end of this passage. He cares for those who trust him. 
But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh, and he'll pursue his foes into darkness. And so you see this great wrath of God being poured out upon those who oppose him. Now, there's a couple of key statements here. Number one, it says that God is slow to anger. And we could give you some examples, but sometimes we're talking centuries of patience yeah. against those who oppose him, for societies who oppose him. So centuries of patience with the children of Israel in, under the Mosaic law. It's just, right. it's amazing right. to me. That they that, slandered his name and it disregarded what he told them. And they'd promised they were going to obey him. Well, when you just take the Ninevites here, Naomi was speaking about the Ninevites. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. If you do even a cursory study of the Assyrians in ancient history, Gary, you would see that for hundreds of years, this society was the cruelest, one of the cruelest that had ever been on the earth. Their, their method of going through a city and a, and a village was to first go in and kill as many of the old and sick and the women as they possibly could. They would take the babies away, out of the arms of their mothers and dash them against trees and rocks as they rode by on their horses. If they saw a pregnant woman, they would impale her with a sword, rip her open, and throw out her infant baby onto the ground in front of all the people to admire. They would hang up, they would crucify people in their own way, all by the hundreds as they went through a town. And this is just part of their cruelty, piling up skulls at the entrances of cities of all the people they killed, not for because they'd done some wickedness, but just because they wanted to scare the people. So God was patient with Nineveh for a long, long time, and he wanted them to repent, and finally through Joni gets them to repent, at least temporarily, somehow. But it wasn't like he just went in there and punished all these innocent people in an innocent, perfectly good culture. Well, it's, it's They were of, offering human sacrifice. Well, it's like uh, when the children of Israel went into the promised land, and he told them to basically, he told them to kill all those people and practice genocide. But why was it done? Because what he had said, their iniquity had not been fulfilled. As a matter of fact, he held them back. 400 years he did not punish them. He held it back, giving them a chance to change their ways. They wouldn't do it. And it's it's interesting to me that that society was noted for killing its children, infants. Right. Basically, it's about as close to abortion as you can get in in that time. Yes. And, And the same thing is true of the Romans the Roman Empire, I mean, they were guilty of all manner of atrocities. The idea that we put forth that all these were just great innocent cultures full of all these innocent people and so forth just isn't true. As we, you know, from the least to the greatest, they were guilty of these sins that God had said from the beginning they should have known. The Bible pictures in Romans chapter 2 that human beings have been created with a law in the heart. Uh, as it were, not written, but a law that's written on the conscience. And we don't know all about that law. But God did not punish or judge the ones who lived by that, but the ones who didn't, he did, all of, at all of sin. And so what he says, what it means is this. Every culture knows that it's wrong to kill. Every culture knows it's wrong to lie and steal and commit adultery. And all the, they, they all have their laws about these things and their, even their customs. And as individuals... We break those laws, and we know that we're guilty. Some cultures, though, are even uh, more corrupt in that their laws are extremely unfair from top to bottom, and the people live that way. 
their military leaders are extremely cruel in the way that they treat people. And the societies tolerate these kinds of things. And so um, they, those cultures will deserve, deserve the wrath of God. That's what God's talking about. So um, God's wrath in the Old Testament, for example, is expressed in two ways. Um, kind of like, well, I'll see if I can put this right. God's wrath really comes, first of all, from an intense love for his people, for example, that cannot bear imperfections or unfaithfulness in that which he loves. And so he chastens it, even his own children. That's what happens to us when we become sometimes angry with our children. What, what that anger is, is an obverse reflection of our love for them because we do not want to tolerate what we're seeing. What we're seeing in our child is so abhorrent to us because we love them not because we hate them, but because we love them, what we're seeing is so abhorrent that it makes us angry when we see it, and we're determined to stop it, and that anger pushes us toward punishment or wrath. Uh, yeah, do you understand what I'm saying, Gary? Yeah, Making that point clear? It, it's an effort to train them in many ways. I often wanted, I wanted my children to be better than I was. Yes. Decent Did parents you? do. That's right. I wanted my children to be better than I than I was, and you get disappointment, and that disappointment breeds anger in in or it did in me. That's that's yeah. the way I faced it. Yeah. Uh, and and that, that, can, that can come sometimes from a selfishness, but some of it's also because you love that child. Yeah. You want them to have a better life than you did, and do and be better than you were, and so you're upset with the imperfections that you see, especially if you think it's willful. Oh yes. You know, then it's a whole different ball game. I had to learn this too. You know, you hear uh, it's related to this subject. You you know, don't punish your children when you're angry. Well, I had to punish them when I was angry because it would my anger came and went so quickly that if I waited for a second, I would always make excuses for them and I never would punish them. And that wasn't good for them either. What I had to learn to do was control my punishment so that it wasn't it wasn't controlled by my anger. It might have been motivated by my anger at them for disobedience and foolishness but well, it wasn't well most of us most of us shrink back from that conflict aspect of it uh to try to punish someone you know basically someone that you love creates i it creates conflict in me it's it's not a pleasant feeling it's not something i want to do no and and the only thing that forces you into that a lot of times is anger or uh a high degree of a high grade of disappointment that in it's, my a case, motiv- it's a motivator, right? It's a motivator. That's, that's probably the right word. In, in, and yet we find these kind of readings, maybe relate to this, um, in, in uh, Psalm 103, uh, just a snippet. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger, although he does have anger, of course, abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor has he punished us according to our iniquities. So God, even despite we might get upset about his anger, and the Bible says a lot about it, he's telling us there, and I speak, I think, to people that are God's children, that he's not going to destroy you in his anger if you are his child, and he is going to, if you, and if you repent, he's not always going to deal, he doesn't even deal with you as he should deal with you in this. If we had any glimpse, Gary, of the, of the magnificence of God, 
of his goodness, justice, love, mercy, if we had any glimpse of this, we would be we would be awestruck at what our sin looks like, our our rebellion against him, to do our own will always and ignore what he says. It, it is a terrible thing that shakes the universe when God's creatures willfully sin against him. It, and the reason so is not because he's petty, but it's because he's so righteous and he's so good and so merciful. And so there's no reason for us to act like that. And yet we still do. So some of God's love, some of God's wrath is because it's, uh, it's coming from his intense love for us that does not want to bear imperfections or unfaithfulness in that which he loves. And so there's this wrath that comes. And then there's indignation also against those who would injure what God loves. And so God desires to destroy him, like the enemies of Nineveh and Babylon. We see God's, and Moab and Ammon and all the other, the Edomites, we see God expressing his anger toward those nations because they were enemies to Israel, that which he loved. And so there's this protective indignation. Now look, a father who doesn't get angry and wrath doesn't explode when someone's trying to hurt his children isn't much of a father at all, is he? Yes. No, you, you, it, your anger rises up in you when you think someone is going to hurt them. True of a mother also. And so this is God sometimes, and, and much of what the Old Testament says about God's anger is in that context about that. And so the knowledge of God's wrath then, um, if we would accept it as modern people, it is a basis for the fear and respect that God demands and deserves. And, you know, we should be able to recognize this and, and recognize what God means this. E- even, you see, Gideon said this, don't be angry with me, ask God in Judges 6, don't be angry with me. Abraham asked God not to be angry with him in, Gen- uh, in uh, Genesis 18, even though they were both considered friends of, friends of, uh, of God. And you see this all the way through. And yet God is angry with many people, even people like David who sinned against God. And yet He's angry with them. He was angry with David, and David suffered for it. But what happened? What was the end result? Well, when he, David, da, when, Immediately when David was confronted with his sin, what did he say? I have I sinned. See. But see, he, God was angry with David, and he was going to face the consequences. But God also manifest his love in that he sent Nathan the prophet to show David what was wrong. And so happened that David was a man after God's own heart. And therefore, when the prophet told him the story that he told him about the lamb, he repented. God does the same thing with all of us, only we just don't respond that way. He gives us chance after chance to repent and do well. And yet we often refuse him in, in, his, in his wrath. So we, we're in a facing it. Now, you know... Um, when, when you mentioned providence before, it's very difficult to look in specific instances in our lives and say, oh, yeah, that was the wrath of God. Uh, we don't know those things. We can know, generally speaking, God is going to punish the wicked, whether it's in this life or the next. And that's one reason I believe in hell on the judgment day, because God does, does need, if he's a righteous God, to give an accounting, make an accounting well, of there, all the wickedness that's taken place in the world. There, there are several places where it says God is going to judge the sinner or God is going to punish the wicked man, and there's no qualification on it. I mean, he is going to punish the wicked man. Now, the question is, is it going to be here in this life or is it going to be in the next? But, I it, think but it's going know, to be right. punishment. There's, and there's some indication in the Bible, you see some psalms that sometimes the wicked don't get punished in this life. 
Lazarus didn't get, I mean, the rich man, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Luke 16, he didn't get punished in this life. Apparently lived a wealthy, happy life and died. Well, and he then, didn't even know he was in trouble until he woke up in, in torment. And, and Job he, points out that he's known wicked men that lived, you know, essentially prosperous lives. Yes. And, and, and yet God says, I'm going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me, God says he's going to punish that wicked. So now we know where that punishment has to occur. Well, Gary, I want to change the course just a little bit of this. We can come back to some of these things and talk well, about I wanted to make one oh, comment. Go ahead. I wanted yeah, to make one comment about you. You spoke about uh, was Romans two, I think, in verse fourteen, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these all, though not having the law, are a law unto themselves. Presents the idea that they're doing the right thing, and God recognizes this. This this was before Christ. Now, well, that's about. what I was going to point out. That changed with Christ because he said now he demands all men to repent. Right. In Acts 16, it says the times of this ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. For he has established a day, he says, in which he will judge the world by his son, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's what I want to get back to. That has changed over this time, and it changed with the coming of Christ. But I, I was making a point in general about the fact that human beings... You you can say we do know what's right or wrong. Yeah, even I, these even these cultures who who uh, you could say that they um, you know they seem like they're in darkness, but they're not in darkness. They they in the past they did know what was right yeah, or wrong. Basically, most of these these uh, what we would call Aboriginal or you know cultures like that undeveloped cultures have certain things that are wrong just basically they even though it's i call it the natural law because he said by nature do those things i i i termed it that way so i could understand it but that's that that is kind of a natural law that god has put in us that we understand basic right and wrong on some level right and i think it's different for for individuals i think some there are some individuals who do not have that I Their conscience that, has been seared with a, as with a hot iron, he says in the in, in Second Timothy. In other words, it's been they've violated their conscience so often that it's like taking a, a hot branding iron and you and hit the skin with it. When it heals over, it's so scarred you can't feel anything. Yeah. And so people can violate their conscience so much and so intensely that they become we would call them in our jargon today psychopaths and can't really tell right or wrong or don't have any feeling about sociopaths maybe that's the word i'm looking for well the passage i was referring to i gave the wrong reference not Acts 16 Acts 17 where paul's on mars hill and he talks about the fact that since we're as off since we are the offspring of god human beings we ought not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone this is verse 29 of Acts 17 something shape or art or devising truly the times of ignorance god overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So the assurance of the fact that God intends to judge the world by Jesus Christ is that God raised him from the dead to be the judge at the end of time. So the words that I speak, as you quote all the time, right. the judge in the last day, this is exactly what... Uh, Paul tells the Athenians here, and the time of this ignorance, you people can walk your own way and do whatever you want, is gone. Now you must be judged by the law of Christ. 
and God now holds you accountable to what he says. And so when you then, when you then hear God has sent his son and suffered in ways we can't even understand because of his eternity and because of his divinity, and then when he comes and you, you spurn him, you disobey and spurn him. As he pictures in the parable he told of the father sending servants to this vineyard to get him to do right, and finally he sends his son, and they killed his son. He's saying, what kind of vengeance do you think I'm going to exact on those who kill the son? And so he says here, I'm saying to you, what kind of vengeance is to be expected when God sends his son and we reject him? There will be a price to pay for that because he sent you love. What well, like he sent you angry, anger. He sent you love, and you spurned it. And this is the picture of really the story of the Bible. And, and yes, you're, I mean, it's a good point you made. I kind of thought of it as I passed through my mind when we were talking about it, that, that this idea that everybody gets to make up their own law. No, that's not still today. But I do say it's still in our hearts. People know, even if you've never been to church, they know that certain things are wrong. They may do them anyway. That's not the point. But they know it's wrong. And cultures yes. that have never had, never, we would say, never had a Bible, I'm not sure there are any left, they know that certain things are wrong, and they've got laws about that kind of thing that they pass in their own way. And so it isn't a mystery what God is going to judge the world by. But it's he, going to be his word. And, he, you know, John 12:48 is not the only place that that's said. We've just mentioned how many, what did you mention right at the end of that passage in Acts that you read? He's going to judge the world by his son. His so son. He's the point heir of all things. That's right. Well, no, that, that's, that Romans, Romans 2 passage, when you look at verse 16, or actually the following verses, uh, he says, uh, Law through themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness between them and themselves, thoughts accusing or else accusing, accusing or excusing, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ mm -hmm. according to my gospel. Right. So that judgment day, according to Jesus' word, is is what this is all about. Now, I, we can go on from there. I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, that's you, but, okay. But, I, but I just, that, you know, it's not like that anymore. That's the point. Yeah, that's a good point. I appreciate you bringing that up. You know, I was going to bring up this point since it ha has to do with modern religious thinking. And many of the people who listen to this show, I'm sure, uh, are have are evangelical or some kind of modern denomination or relatively modern denomination or they're um, have have a religion that's somehow based in Calvinism and some other religions. And as in th thinking about this subject of the wrath of God, it crossed my mind that the the wrath of God I, one of the features that people don't like about Calvinism or Presbyterianism or um, Reformed theology, evangelicalism, is that it has an emphasis on God's wrath. But it's just odd to me to connect up Calvinism or it's the belief in uh, Reformed theology with the wrath of God. Here's why. Looking at this whole big picture, well, let me let me read you the Creed book first, Gary. Yeah, you got you got to understand what's well, what being I, taught. When I say Calvinism, I'm using it in a broad sense. I'm not saying that only Presbyterians believe this or all believe it the same way. But we can we can go on what's written, 
And, and, and Martin Luther believed a form of this, and John Calvin certainly made it popular, and Melanchthon and, and a bunch of the others down through the centuries have believed the same thing. It's taught all throughout this county and everywhere in the United States and, uh, as parts of Reformed theology and so forth. Now, these are people that say they believe in Jesus Christ. I have no dispute about the fact that they believe in Jesus Christ. I just think they're mistaken in their thinking. But here's what, here's what the Presbyterian Catechism, the Westminster Profession of, Confession of Faith says. Quote, God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Okay? So... This is, uh, this is exactly what he said is going to... In other words, God has already unchangeably ordained everything that's going, that has ever come to pass. Now, this is speaking before the foundation of the world, that he did this very thing. And it says here that another, another confession of faith it says that uh, the, the, the angels and men are thus predestined and foreordained in, are, are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot either be increased or diminished. Those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal immutable purpose of the same secret counsel, has chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his mere free grace and love, without any foresight or faith or good works or perseverance in either of them, or in any other thing in the creature as conditions and so forth. So what it's saying is before God ever created anything, he already foreordained particularly and individually every person that's going to be saved and every person that's going to be lost, and it doesn't matter what they do or what they say. And aside from that, everything that, it, that ever comes to pass, whatsoever comes to pass in history, has already been unchangeably ordained by God before the world began. Well, that sounds so religious, doesn't it? It sounds so wonderful, so religious. I believe in, the, they call it the sovereignty of God in this case. Well, that's a different kind of sovereignty than the Bible pictures. Here's the problem with that, Gary. You're smiling. I'm, th- I, I'm, I'm, thinking, I'm, waxing. Of a, I'm thinking of a Calvin and Hobbes um, cartoon. Oh, okay, all right. I'm waxing <laughs> elephants here. Well, all right, maybe I can retain my thought if you tell us about Calvin and Hobbes. Go well, it, you no, you need to tell them who Calvin and Hobbes are in that in that cartoon because it, unless you know that little kernel of secret, well, Calvin and Hobbes you, in the cartoon are a little boy, a little five and, year, and his little, and his little Calvin is the little boy, five year old boy, and, the, and his tiger is Hobbes, who is uh, another his, his Enlightenment stuffed, philosopher. Right, his his yeah. basically his right. stuffed tiger, his stuffed that, tiger that, that always is. His cunt going the other way from him, right? Yes. So well, they're really uh, John Calvin and Hobbes from from the Enlightenment period, period. right? Time and and right. they're and it's a funny cartoon, but a lot of it has to do with this very these kind of issues: free will, choice. Right. Calvin's always disobeying his parents or wants to. Back and forth they go. And, is that what you're getting at? Yeah, right. And Calvin, in one of the cartoons, is making the point that he's not to blame for anything that he did he does because God has already foreordained. Everything that's going to happen to it, and, and he no, can't and, change it, and he can't change. Why are my it. parents upset with me, right? Okay, and about that time, Hobbes sticks his foot out and trips Calvin, and he falls <laughs> flat on his face. And Hobbes looks down and says, 
I can't be blamed for that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, we all like to talk about all these unchangeably ordained events until it happens to us. Right. right? But my point is. That's why I was chuckling. Yes, and that's exactly the point I'm making in a a small way. The big (laughs) picture is when you go and read the Bible about the wrath of God, how do you justify the wrath of God on any rational basis when God has already preordained everything that comes to pass? So that all these creatures that he's going to show his wrath to are simply creatures that he's already made to disobey him. They can't help it. They can't do anything except disobey him. And yet he somehow takes pleasure in exercising his wrath against creatures he made to do exactly what they're doing. That makes no sense to me. Now, you can, well, that's because you're not God. Who are you to question the edicts of God? Well, I will say this. If the Bible is that irrational about the nature of these big things, I don't trust it either, okay, if that's the way God is. The Bible presents the fact that God is angry with man. Why? Because man intentionally sins against him when he doesn't have to. That's why he's, God is angry. People have sinned against God from the beginning. They haven't been forced to do it. It's not unchanged, but ordained to do it. We are rebellious against God. We are unthankful toward God. We do not respect Him. We do not fear Him. And therefore, He is justifiably angry toward human beings for this kind of behavior. So, yeah, if you took, look at it that way, if you put free will into the equation, God's wrath makes all the sense in the world. If you begin to understand who God is, if you take the free will out of it like Reformed theology does, to me it makes no sense. And you you can't, how do you begin to understand God's wrath at at Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel when according to this this statement from the Presbyterian Catechism, God had ordained that that was going to happen, that they were going to disobey him before he made them, and they couldn't do anything but that, and yet God gets mad about it. And wants to punish him for it. Well, now, Gary, am I am I too shallow to get the point well, here, or are we right on the money? Well, here's a problem. You have one problem with it. And I have another. I have that problem and another. Okay. Because I go to Jeremiah chapter 18, and I begin reading it about verse five, and it says, "When the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as a potter?" says the Lord, look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now, pay attention carefully to the next verses. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck it up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I have brought, thought to bring upon it, And the instant I speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom, to build it up and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight, so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which I said I would benefit it. Now, isn't that just exactly the opposite of what the, you know, and this is Isaiah telling the children of Israel, this is how God works. So I have a problem with this in and it's just not in the scripture. Where do you get it? Well, it's a philosophy. Calvinism and Reformed theology is a philosophy that starts off with this idea that man can't ever do anything to save himself. Well, it starts off with the denial of free will. And you know what? Most human beings, I don't care if they're pagan Greeks or people in the Amazon jungle, 
most human beings do not really want free will on one level. Because free will implies responsibility and accountability. Yes. And so we do a lot of things in our religions and in our thinking. And, and of course, modern secular people have DNA, don't they, that gets them off the hook? And social engineering, and I lived in a ghetto, so I get to do this, or my DNA says this, and so I get to do that. We, ha- we all have reasons why we're not accountable for what we're doing and what we're thinking. Humans have always been this way. And so Calvinism is simply another religious reflection of that same struggle the Greeks had and that Homer addressed in the Iliad and the Odyssey and all that kind of stuff about free will, whether Odysseus was free to do this or whether the fates had to, did the fates determine it or did he do it freely. On and on it goes. Oedipus, uh, who wrote about Oedipus Rex, that he really freely do the things he did or was he bound by the fates to, you know, to to marry his own mother and whatever the case may be. These aren't new things. John Calvin wasn't struggling with some new problem when he came up with this. It's a philosophy that tries to explain man's responsibility in a certain way. And and it does explain some things. The truth is, there there, there are ways in which we're not completely free to do what we do. We're all, we are accountable. We are, we are pushed and pulled. You can cause somebody else to sin. That's true. Jesus said so. If you cause one of these little ones to stumble, better that a mill stone be cut about your neck. You, but the, does that mean that they're not responsible too? No, the reason the millstone's about your neck, you cause them to sin, and now they're going to be punished for what they did. You see. I wrote here while you were talking, Gary. I wrote this note. God is not angry with you because Adam sinned. He's angry with you because you sinned. Yes. There it is. I think that's right. When people want to act like God's mad at the human race and has pronounced a curse upon us, we're all totally depraved because Adam sinned. We are depraved because we sin. We are not totally depraved because we can do what's right, but we don't do what's right. We don't. We do what we want to do. That's the human nature. That's this flesh that we fight against. I want to do what I want to do. It affects all of us including me, yourself, as much as or more than a lot of other people. I want to do what I want to do, and therefore I sin against God when I do that. And that's why God is angry with me as a sinner when I do that, not because Adam sinned in the garden all those centuries ago. Well, he, that- he showed me how to do it. Adam and Eve showed me how to do it, and we've learned from our parents how to do it, but we do it because we want to do it. That's why we do it. And that's why God's wrath is kindled against me, against you, and all these people out here that are listening to us. Well, that passage I read is Jeremiah 18, verse 5 through 10. If any of you in the audience want to read that, go look at it. It's very simple. And verse 11 is the exactly the explanation we've been talking about as to why, why God does this. Because in verse 11, right after I read that, he says, Therefore speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now every one of you from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. Right. He's warning them. I'm fashioning a disaster from you. But if you turn from your way, I'll relent. I'll relent. And so the Bible pictures God changing his mind over and over again. Now, is that just because uh, uh, God already foreordained he was going to change his mind specifically? Well, it doesn't well, make it, sense to me that God says all of this just to then control the people that he's looking at and saying, okay, 
I'm going to make them repent so I don't have to do this. Now, I, that just that's right. No, none of it none, none of it makes any sense from any logical standpoint. You have to change all these definitions of words that don't mean anything at all. Now, I do think God did foreordain that when people repent, He will change His mind. That's been foreordained. He did foreordain that He would save people who are poor in spirit. Right? He that's yeah. been predestined, and those who are poor in spirit have been predestined to be saved. The Bible does teach that. Well, there's a, there's a classic okay. explanation from that that I've always heard. When I was in school, my teacher said, okay, if you score this amount on the test, you're going to get an A. If you score this amount, you're going to get a B. If you score this amount, you're going to get a C, and so on. He predestined all those people what their scores are. It's already are, been determined. But it's already been determined, but it's based on what they or each one of us did. Right. So and when a he lot says, of factors go into that determining how you get your score. Some right. of that's your native intelligence, some of it's your background, some, some of it's how hard you studied, you know, all kinds of other stuff. Right. But basically, on. that was a predestination of a fashion of after a fashion. Well, that's what the Bible's talking about. Yes. Not talking about individual predestination of people before the world began. He picked out who he was going to save before the world began, but not the individuals, what? because he keeps saying, come unto me, all ye labor and heavy what do, what do Jesus' words mean? Come unto me, all ye that are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. If it's already been foreordained and predestined before the world began, that only certain people would be saved, no matter what they did. And that's what the catechism says. We just read it. No matter what they did individually, it doesn't matter at all. They were going to either be saved or lost from the before the beginning of the world, and God already foreordained that. That's Calvinism. That's that's Reformed theology that people are so in love with. What in the world could Jesus' words mean? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and so forth. That's that. There's no way you can look at those words and say that I don't have a choice in that matter, and that what I do doesn't make a difference as to how whether Jesus accepts me or not. He's inviting me to come. Well, if that's already been determined, it's nonsense, and I'm not using that word in just a, a, a casual way. It's nonsensical if it, it's it, already been predetermined. It just. Well, these verses in Jeremiah just make no sense at all if that's the case. Yes, and so the real point for us is what I, I think what I said for people to understand, that if you want to read in the Bible, and you, you do read in the Bible about the wrath of God hundreds of times, so it's a subject that you have to take into consideration. But God is angry if he's angry at you because you've sinned. Now, where is that? When did you sin? What's your sin about? Well, that's where you need the Word of God to show you, to enlighten your steps. To show you where your sin is so you can repent of that sin. Now, the only solution to that is not a man-made solution. Once man determines that he's a sinner, he can't fix that problem just by doing good deeds. But he can come to Christ, who then can can direct his steps. He can have the blood of Christ put upon him. Now, that's what God does offer. To To whosoever will he says, may come. Whosoever will. Well, I didn't think we had any will in the matter. Doesn't Jesus say, whosoever will may come? Let him come and drink of the water of life freely. If it's already been predetermined, once again, Jesus' own words don't make any sense. Whosoever will may come. It doesn't say whosoever has been predetermined to may come. It just, so God's angry with you because you've sinned. And that's the, that's the, 
the gospel is beautiful, but it only is really beautiful when we put it up against and show that there's a wrath of God that's justifiable, it's right, it's righteous, it should be there. It's justifiable because of man's rebellion against the creator of the universe. Now then, when you put that up against his mercy that he shows, when he doesn't have to at all, but he shows love and mercy and kindness and gentleness, and he, he is more free with his mercy than he is with his wrath. He's long-suffering in his mercy, but he doesn't hold back his... I mean, he's long-suffering in his wrath, but he doesn't hold back his mercy at all. The story of the prodigal son, the man's the yeah. boy goes away, wastes his father's stuff, and has committed all these sins. And guess what? When he turns around, the father is already looking for him. He sees him a long way off, the Bible says, and he runs and falls on his neck and kisses him. Now, now that shows you that the love of God is much more easily obtained than the wrath of God. So there's no reason for you to continue to in your sin if you're listening. No well, that, reason for you to continue to reject Jesus Christ. That's an interesting example to me in, in that, Mike, I, I see in that God designed the family for a reason. He, it shows you stuff, doesn't it? It shows us yeah. stuff yeah. about God. Uh, I'm going to read one more passage. We're, we're about out of time, but I want to read one more passage. Ezekiel 24, beginning in verse 14. He says, I, the Lord, have spoken it. It shall come to pass, and I will do it. I will not hold back. I will not spare. I will, nor will I spare, nor will I relent. According to your ways and according to your deeds, they will judge you. Now, notice he didn't even say, I will judge you. According to your ways you and according to your in the deeds, same manner of in the they same will judge you, says the Lord God. Right. Well, now, you, when you look at this, let's just, I know we've got a couple minutes left here, but let me finish up here, Gary, with a familiar, I'm going to go to a very familiar passage, John three sixteen. okay? When you, everybody knows this passage. He says in verse 14, as Moses, Jesus does, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him, not, not whoever has been appointed from the foundation of the world to believe, but whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now we stop there, but keep reading the next verse. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, that's his wrath, but that the world, world through, through him, him might, might be saved. saved. So there's the wrath of God put up against the goodness of God and his mercy, but that mercy is only found in the son of God nowhere else and it's the only way that we can be saved if we will take advantage of that and, and, and being people saved, still turn their back on that being saved is defined is defined in strong's and vines as being delivered from the wrath of god right that's that's how it's defined well gary our time is gone today we really appreciate those of you who have listened uh, lord willing we'll be on the air live again next week uh, uh, when we get back in town here and we'll have a, you can call in then We'd like to invite you to come to our services. We meet at 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard, 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard in Port St. Lucie at the corner of California and Savona at the north end of Savona. We're on the west side just behind the little shopping center there. And it's the Church of Christ on Savona Boulevard. Come, you'll find ordinary people who love the God, who tr- love God, trying to serve Him, just trying to be Christians. And if that's what you want to be, just a Christian, Come and be with us. Learn. Come and figure out what's going on. We're not going to ask you for money or embarrass you. Take a look at our website, wearejustchristians.com. Wearejustchristians.com. 
Until next week, uh, tune in again then. We want to ask God's blessings upon you for listening, and may God bless you this week. WPSL Port St. Lucie.